1973. Man, I'm loud. <laughs> of course, I hear that a lot. So, In 1973, William Goldman wrote a book. In 1987, he wrote a screenplay for that book. And at that point, it became a favorite, and it's now a modern classic. So I want to do some word association with you. When I was going through public speaking courses, then uh, they, one of the things they say to do is to get people involved. All right, so we're going to do some word association. So I'm going to say some words, and if you know the movie I'm talking about, when I say the word, as soon as it comes to your mind, say it. I want to see where you guys are with this. All right? Revenge. Buttercup. Nobody? The Princess Bride, there we go. I was going to keep going Gilder, Inconceivable. If nobody got it at Inconceivable, we were going to have a problem. Pit of Despair, Fire Swamp. So, of course, the movie is The Princess Bride. And, and there's another phrase in the movie, and I want you to tell me what it means. And the phrase is, as you wish. I love you. Very good. We're told that when Wesley answers Buttercup's request with, as you wish, what he really means is, I love you. So, is that how you tell God, I love you? When God speaks to us, is our response out of love, do we say, as you wish? We're going to be in Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. And we're going to skip through, we're going to do a few verses at the front, one through four, and then we're going to skip down to 28. So Deuteronomy 12, 1 says, These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your ancestors, has given you to possess. As long as you live in the land... Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every spreading tree where the nations you're just possessing worship their gods. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. Cut down the idols of their gods and wipe out their names from those places. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Be careful to obey all these regulations I'm giving you so that it may always go well with you and your children after you. Because you'll be doing what is good and right in the eyes of the Lord your God. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you're about to invade and dispossess. But when you've driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods. Saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. When we think of worship, what do we often think of? Music? Beautiful prayers? 
inspirational quotes, well-delivered sermons. So is worship merely gathering together with believers and guests on a Sunday morning? William Temple, the renowned Archbishop of Canterbury, said, Worship is the quickening of the conscience by the holiness of God, feeding the mind with the truth of God, purging the imagination by the beauty of God, opening the heart to the love of God, and devoting the will to the purpose of God. As, you know, when I approached Ronnie a couple of weeks ago with kind of where I was going with this, I wasn't quite sure myself. So he said, uh, he said, so what are we, what are we doing? And I said, we're going to talk about worship. Well, that's not broad at all. So as usually happens when uh, I begin preparing for a message or preparing for a, um, for a lesson, God kind of brings a general concept, either a very broad concept or a very specific concept that I have to flesh out with him, you know. Um, and he begins to narrow it down as I read more and as I study more and study more. And I think that's God's way of keeping me from getting distracted. So I want you to listen to that quote again, what William Temple says. And I want you to listen to it phrase by phrase. And tell me how this plays out for you. Worship is the quickening of the conscience by the holiness of God. It is the feeding of the mind with the truth of God. It is purging the imagination by the beauty of God. It is opening the heart to the love of God. And devoting the will to the purpose of God. A lot of these are acts of will. Have you ever thought about your relationship with God as uh, being one that is one that you have a part in? And that sounds like a weird thing to say. But have you ever heard somebody say this, I can't believe, I can't love that person, I can't worship that God? I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. But relationship with God and worship of God is an act of will. It is something that we decide we're going to do, we decide we're going to be a part of, and we make the investment to make that happen. Somebody um, sent a letter to Emily Post one time. Actually, probably more than one person have done that, I have a feeling. Um, but... Uh, but they asked the question, they said, I received an invitation to the White House, but I have a previous engagement the evening that, of the invitation, so what should I do? And her response is very simple. An invitation from the White House is a command. There are no previous engagements. Is that how you see worship? Is that how you see your relationship with God? That it is something that everything else falls under. There is nothing above that. Even if the weather is nice, even if the waves are calling, the fish are biting, 
the race is on, the games start earlier than what you would hope, where is your service? Where is your worship? The message today is titled, Worship and Service, because the two cannot be separated. They can't. So worship actually equals service. The Hebrew word abad means to worship, to serve, or to make oneself a servant. To make oneself a servant. Have you ever noticed how much, and I, I forgot to, to look this up when I was thinking about it at 4 o'clock this morning. Anyway, um, have you ever noticed how many times Paul refers to himself as the bondservant of Christ? A bondservant is a voluntary slave. And it points back to an Old Testament custom that, uh, that when you are to be, um, to be released from your debt, you have served your time with the family um, because you have been in bondage to them to pay a debt and the time comes for, uh, for you to be set free, then you're allowed to stay. But you can't stay for a little bit longer. You have to stay for the rest of your life. And the way you make this agreement with the family is you tell them you would like to stay. And then uh, the family takes you to the doorpost at the front of the house and you stick your ear up against the doorpost and they take a leather punch and they jam it through the earlobe and they pierce your ear and they put an earring on it. Now, I don't know I've loved any family that much. <laughs> and yes, before you ask, that includes my own. I'm kidding-ish. But don't... Um, but but here's, here's the point. When Paul is saying that he's a, a bondservant of Christ, he's saying... I'm irrevocably connected, and I will always serve for the rest of my life. There is no backing out. There is no backing out. So your status in the community um, makes you more of a family member to the, uh, to the people that you have connected yourself to. So your responsibilities, your rights, your authority at the marketplace are all different than they are if you're just a slave in the family. So worship equals service. And that Hebrew word abad means to worship, to serve, or to make oneself a servant. But one of the definitions makes a clarifying statement. And it is to serve another by labor. To serve another by labor. In other words, it is an active service. It is an ongoing service. It is something that you decide to do. And that service isn't, um, isn't just saying... Uh, saying, okay, yeah, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a believer. I believe in God. So I'm going to express to you for clarification that if you aren't serving the Lord through labor, you're not worshiping God. If you're not serving the Lord through labor, you're not worshiping God. If you think just showing up for a couple of hours on most Sundays is worship, it's not. It's not. Worship is doing the Lord's work. That is an act of worship. What has God called you to? What has he created you for? And are you fulfilling that call? One of the things that, um, that I've heard much of the time when I was in school um, about uh, in training for ministry was that um, it is very commonly known that 80% of the work in churches is done by 20% of the people. Now, that's a little bit different here. 
But serving in church is not the same as just worshiping. It's not the same as serving wherever. It's not the same as serving the Lord. There's lots of different ways to serve the Lord. If the Lord has called you to do the work, then do the work. That is an act of worship. In the New Testament, the Greek word for worship is proskuneo. And it means to bow in reverence or to adore. In John 4, 23-24, Jesus says, A time is coming, and he's speaking to the woman at the well, A time is coming, and it has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So what kind of worshipers is he looking for? Those who worship in spirit and in truth. So God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. Chuck Smith says this, We need to become more conscious of of the all-prevailing presence of God wherever I am. We need to become more conscious of the all-prevailing presence of God wherever I am. God is a spirit. I'm surrounded by him. For in him we live and move and we have our being, and you cannot localize God. I love that statement. You cannot localize God. A lot of people say that this is God's house. But according to the New Testament, this is God's house. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The temple is where God lived. Dave Guzik says this. He says, to worship in spirit means you're concerned with spiritual realities. Not so much with places or outward sacrifices, cleansings, and trappings. So to worship means you're concerned with spiritual realities. We get so distracted by the natural things around us that we forget about spiritual realities. Do we get overwhelmed with the negative stuff that we see? Do we get overwhelmed with the fears, the anxieties, the worries, the doubts, not just in our society, but in our families, in our households, that we forget to worship? To worship in truth, this is critical. To worship in truth means you worship according to the whole counsel of God's word. Especially in light of the New Testament revelation, it also means you come to God in truth, not in pretense or a mere display of spirituality. Jesus' primary uh, objection to the religious leaders, and the reason he called them hypocrites, he used terms like brood of vipers. That's flattering. Whitewashed tombs. Clean on the outside, but filled with dead man's bones. His primary concern is because of their hypocrisy. That word hypocrisy gets thrown around a lot. But the actual term, uh, word hypocrite from the Greek, means insincere. And it refers to an actor playing a part. In Greek tragedies and Greek plays, a lot of times there would be one or maybe two actors on the stage, but they would have three or four masks in their hands, and they would... Uh, play a character, and they put on one mask as they said those lines, and then when they responded as the other character, they put on a different mask. We think that the, the Pharisees were terrible and crooked and corrupt, but Jesus' primary objection was they didn't really mean what they said to the people. They didn't really believe it themselves. They were so concerned, apparently, with making sure that they looked righteous that they had no concern in actually being righteous. 
So when we talk about worshiping in spirit and truth, this, uh, worshiping in spirit means we're concerned with spiritual realities, and worshiping in truth means we worship according to the whole counsel of God's word. You ever skip the passage because it speaks to you? You ever bypass a book of the Bible because it's just not that interesting to you? How are we supposed to worship a God that we don't know that much about? We worship according to the whole counsel of God's word. The entire thing, the parts we like and the parts we don't. Worship, secondly, it enhances and it reflects our relationship with God. Peter T. Forsyth says, The first duty of every soul is to find not its freedom, but its master. The first duty of every soul is, not to, find, is to find not its freedom, but its master. Who is your master? Peter tells us that we're a slave to whatever has mastery over Paul made it very clear that he was a bondservant to Christ. Jesus is his master. And there's no room for anybody else on that throne. Romans 12:1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. As I prepared for this, I got a little bit offended and I regretted the fact that I had not worn my steel-toe boots to my study. Paul calls us to offer ourselves to the Lord sacrificially. Because when we honestly consider what God has done for us, anything we can offer pales in comparison. When we live sacrificially, this is real worship. And this is where I start hurting my feelings. <laughs> However, it's important that our sacrifice be clean and unblemished, here being described as holy and pleasing. God set a standard for what a sacrifice could and could not be. You can't use this for sacrifice. It has to be like this. And it was painful to offer a sacrifice, and it was costly. We are called the priesthood of believers I'm digging a hole for myself, which is hard for me to get out of because the truth hurts. If we're living for ourselves and pursuing our own pleasures, what is the condition of our sacrifice? When Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, it was because of dishonesty. And here's your question. How honest are you as a priest in examining the sacrifice you bring to the Lord? How honest are you as a priest in examining the sacrifice you bring to the Lord? Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in other words, under the umbrella of what we know, through the lens of what God has done for us, the mercy he has provided for us, Paul urges us, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. That is true and proper worship. Vance Havner again <laughs> says this. A wife who is 85% faithful to her husband is not faithful at all. 
There is no such thing as part-time loyalty to Jesus Christ. In Psalm 29.2, we're told, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Psalm 100 verse 2 says, Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Do we ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name? Whatever we're facing, whatever we're going through, whatever we're dealing with, does the Lord get the glory? Sometimes we will glorify the Lord for what He's already done or what we recognize that He's done or what we've seen or what we caught. But do we ever glorify the Lord for what He has yet to do, but we know He will? There's a lot of stuff that the Lord does that we have yet to see, we have yet to recognize. It's so easy for us to say that the Lord... Um, hasn't done this for me. Most of the time, people who, uh, for lack of a better term, leave the faith, which I disagree that that's actually what happens. I don't know that they ever had much faith to begin with. Most of their complaint is that God didn't do what I thought he should do. Have you ever wanted to displace God off his throne and take it for yourself? God, I've got this. I can handle it better than you can. You don't work in my time or my method or the way that I think it should happen. This is why the whole counsel of Scripture is good to know. And it's good to follow. It's hard. But we recognize the holiness of God. And we give God the glory for the stuff that we don't see. But knowing that God does not change. He is always good. Always, always, always unlike me. Unlike me, he is always good. St. Augustine says, Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he is valued above all. Psalm 16 is called a miktam, which likely means it is a secret psalm. Miktam means to cover. And there were uh, some... uh, 16 and then Psalm 50 to 65 or 55 to 60 um, were also miktams. They were uh, psalms that, uh, that, David, uh, that David put together um, in times of crisis. And, and a miktam means to cover. So the, print, the, the understanding of that is that maybe he covered his mouth, you know, in secrecy. And he said, this is between you and me, God. But he says this. Because it's even in the midst of a time of grief... This is part of what David wrote in that psalm. He said, starting in verse 5, 16, 5 to 8, Lord, you alone are my portion of my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Now, you've read of David's life. If you read through this story, things started out okay, and then they got rough, and then they turned around and were okay again, and then for the rest of his life, they were just terrible. His family chasing after him. The king he loved and served the minister to tried to kill him. Dave had the chance to kill him, wouldn't do it. Then his son chased him down, tried to kill him. He had a lot of um, hardship. He spent a lot of time in hiding, living in caves, trying to keep his friendship with Jonathan secret as he was younger. 
um, keep it not quite as uh, public as, as it was, not quite as affectionate as they wish they could be because they were so close. But Jonathan was the son of the king. But David said, I will keep my eyes always on the Lord. And with him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That is a life of worship. That is a life of worship. So worship reflects and enhances our relationship with God. But third, our relationship with people reflects our worship of God. Okay, you're not going to like this. He says from experience. G.C. Morgan says, God seeks and values the gifts we bring him. Gifts of praise, thanksgiving, service, and material offerings. And all such giving at the altar, we enter into the highest experiences of fellowship. But the gift is acceptable to God in the measure to which the one who offers it is in fellowship with him in character and conduct. And the test of this is in our relationships with our fellow men. We are thus charged to postpone giving to God until right relationships are established with others. And then he asks this question. Could the neglect of this be the explanation of the barrenness of our worship? Could the neglect of this, these relationships with people, could the neglect of this be the explanation of the barrenness of our worship? Is it possible that our worship falls flat? When people say, I didn't feel the spirit move, I'm reminded of the story of a, um, of a young boy. He went to church, um, as the, his family did every Sunday, um, and that night he went to pray, and he said, uh, he said, God, I had a good time at church today. I wish you could have been there to see it. A lot of times... Our worship is not true worship. And our worship falls flat because of the bitterness we have toward each other. Here's the truth. We're all broken. Every one of us has reasons why people should resent us. We say terrible things to each other. We hold grudges against each other. We treat each other awfully, awful. And then we put on our plastic smile and come to church. And we say, I'm here to worship. And a lot of times, we're here to make sure that other people see us pretend to worship. And maybe we even approach the throne of, throne of grace with that same plastic smile. I think looking at Psalm 16, one of the things that jumped out at me about it was, I'd never heard that term before. I mean, I read it, but... How many times do we read the first thing of a psalm where it says for the choir director a psalm of David and we're like, okay, yeah, that's great. And then we, then we move into the rest of it to see, get to the good parts. So I'm sure that I had seen that word before, but I didn't know what a miktam was. And until I studied and prepared for this and I saw that, I had no idea that it was David in secret speaking to the Lord, maybe in hopes nobody else would ever see this. 
just saying, God, this is between you and me, okay? And he was in absolute worship of the Lord. That wherever he was, whatever was going on, he said, God, despite the crisis I'm going through right now, generally, you've been really great to me. My boundaries have fallen in favorable places, he says. The stuff that you've given me has all worked out really great. You've done amazing things for me. And you even instruct me at night when I'm tired and I'm depressed and I'm lonely, I'm by myself, still you speak to me and you teach me your ways. Look at Matthew 5, 23 and 24. It's very familiar for most of us. Therefore, Jesus says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them then come and offer your gift. We live in a time when the popular thing to do is to end relationships, to hold a grudge, or to air our dirty laundry online. Whatever happened to talking with someone who hurt you or apologizing face-to-face to those you've offended? I'm going to drop another hand for you. A text is not face-to-face. And don't go to somebody, and this is not in Scripture, this is just coming from me. Don't go to somebody who has hurt you, but they don't know they've hurt you, and just spit out, I forgive you. If you've never had that happen, good for you. If you're willing to offer forgiveness to somebody, or you need to ask forgiveness for somebody, you better be really, really willing to tell the whole story and find out what's going on. Your conversations, your relationships are not the Twitterverse. Use your words, people. Build your relationships. Heal the hurts. Listen to this. The question for us is what does it say about those who claim to be people of God when our solution to private offenses is public disgrace? The word of God is filled with redemption, grace, mercy, forgiveness, reconciliation, all things we are to practice and display. Do we consider forgiveness for others as an act of worship? Have you ever considered that? Do we understand that confession and apology to an offended party is a holy act? Colossians 3, 12-13. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And that's a big fat statement at the end that we don't know what to do with. We don't know what to do with that. You know what that means to forgive as the Lord forgave you? I read a devotional by Dave Guzik again, and, um, and I didn't know it was him until I got to the end, and then I'm like, oh, that makes sense. 
And he says this, when one thinks of how Christ forgave you, it should make us much more generous with forgiveness. God reaches out to bad people to bring them forgiveness. The habit of man is to not forgive if the offending person is a person of bad character. So what does it look like to forgive as God forgave us? First of all, God reaches out to bad people to bring them forgiveness. Second, God makes the first move towards us in forgiveness. The habit of man is to only forgive if the offending party really wants it and makes a first move. You make the first move to forgive somebody, or do you wait until they're really ready to receive it as you see fit? God forgives often knowing that we will sin again, sometimes in the exact same way. It's a habit of man to forgive only if the offending party solemnly promises to never do wrong again. God's forgiveness is so complete and glorious that he grants adoption to those former offenders. Yikes. In the habit of man, even when forgiveness is offered, he will not lift again the former offender to a place of high status and partnership. God bore all of the penalty for the wrong he did against him. In the habit of man, when he is wronged, he will not forgive unless the offender agrees to bear all or most of the penalty for the wrong done. God keeps reaching out to man to forgive him even when man refuses him again and again. In the habit of man, one will not continue to offer forgiveness if it is rejected even once. God requires no probationary period to receive his forgiveness. In the habit of man, one will not restore an offender without a period of probation. God's forgiveness offers a complete restoration and honor. In the habit of man, we feel we should be complimented when we merely tolerate those who sin against us. Consider how the Lord has forgiven you. Consider it deeply. It is not an easy thing to look at ourselves and to see how God has forgiven us. And not how God has forgiven us, but how God has forgiven me. I know our tendency is to go to lunch after Bible study and to talk about the things that bother us in the sermon and to begin making excuses why that didn't speak to me and how my case is different. Resist that temptation. Examine yourself. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself to see if you are a holy and acceptable sacrifice knowing that Jesus says, before you bring your sacrifice, make reconciliation. Where do you sit? Where do you stand? Imagine how different we would be if we served the Lord as an act of worship, worshiped Him in spirit and in truth, examined and presented ourselves as acceptable sacrifices and forgave as the Lord forgave us. I'll close with this question. How would things be different if worship was a lifestyle 
instead of an event.